0: Let's get your best evil laugh. Uh,
1: <laughs> okay. That's going into the show opener.
2: <laughs> show opener. That's going as my ringtone.
3: <laughs>
4: it's already my ringtone.
1: I I, 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 I want I wanted to like something and there's going to be something on Code Climate that when it throws a red flag, <laughs> it does that. <laughs> oh there you go.
0: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at BlueBox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMind. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMind by going to JetBrains.com Ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to slash New Relic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 83 of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we
2: have Josh Susser. Hey, everyone. David Brady. In the unlikely event of a water landing, your headphones can be used as a flotation device. Avdi Grimm. Hey, from Pennsylvania. Katrina Owen.
3: Hello.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest. It's Brian Helmkamp.
2: Hi, everyone. We're missing someone today. Oh, really?
0: Dun-dun-dun!
2: Yeah, yeah, where's James?
0: I haven't
5: seen him.
2: James can't be here today because he's tutoring the Pope in the scientific method. All
0: right.
1: We'll go go with that. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so we have
2: a couple
0: of announcements um, before we get going. The first one, I'm going to let Katrina give us the best of parlay.
3: This week, you guys missed an awesome thread on code quality. Uh, It talked about everything from people problems to, uh, uh, what's it called, cowboy coders and dramatic saves, and uh, how to bring change to a team. Um, All in all, it was very, very informative and very, let's just say there was no trolling. Wow.
2: Oh, I can fix that. I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right the other announcement is that uh, code school has offered their ruby bits one uh, course to all of our listeners for free um, you can go and pick it up by going to well they have this big long url um, just go to RubyRogues.com com slash ruby bits uh, and uh, it'll take you to the right place the, the long URL is mktg.codeschool.com slash ruby-bits-1-rubyrogues. So we will shorten that for you. Just go to rubyrogues.com slash rubybits.
2: So.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: hi, Bri- hi, Brian. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great. How are you, Josh? Uh, it, it's just lovely here in San Francisco. I, I love when the rain washes all of the pee off the sidewalks. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear <laughs> what you, you obviously That's... don't live in San Francisco
4: <laughs> yeah we have the same phenomenon <laughs> in New York absolutely yeah
5: oh, oh my gosh so all right
0: well
2: um, let's... petrichor is the smell of when it just first starts to rain and mm-hmm. so in San Francisco petrichor actually means the smell of pee being washed away yeah, basically. <laughs> That's awesome. All uh, right, well, let's... Okay, I, I officially love this show again. Let's go.
4: <laughs> now that we've got everybody wanting to move to either San Francisco or New York.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> but only when it rains.
2: Well, I, I just, New York is just as far away from San Francisco as you can get, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, as far as you'd want to get, anyway. Yeah, well, yeah. Um,
2: anyway, uh,
1: so... Well, um, Brian, it seems like you were just on the show. Yeah, not too long ago. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Well, uh, th- that's what happens when you do awesome stuff, and, and, and James demands that you come on the show and tell us about it. And who am I to question James? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the, the Code Climate blog, it's just kind of blowing up with awesomeness. And c- tell us, how, how did you get to be so awesome? <laughs>
4: I don't know if I can answer that question. I I don't think I can acknowledge that I am awesome. Uh, But if I lock myself in a room for a long time, then I get a lot of other stuff done while procrastinating writing a blog post. And then eventually sometimes a blog post comes out.
5: So what were you doing when you were procrastinating writing a blog post?
4: Coding. (laughs) There's a hierarchy.
2: (laughs) This is a really good article on procrastination that basically talks about avoidance behavior and you can actually hook that for the power of good so like if you if you've got like three things you don't want to do, pick the worst one and then do the other two as like avoidance
4: for the third oh, one absolutely that's that's how I do all my writing mm-hmm. <laughs> my my apartment gets cleaner when I have blog posts to write yep. <laughs> so my so ghetto get gets
1: done so you're saying that in order to write a blog post, you need to. Uh, schedule yourself to for a deadline for doing something that you don't want to do more than you don't want to write a blog post. That's right. So you mostly write blog posts right before April fifteenth. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a
4: flurry of them in that. Yeah, okay. We're all filed for an extension, which is <laughs> yes.
2: the Code Climate blog is heating up. They must be about ready to ship a new version. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh,
2: Okay, Mark, so, so... Market so, indicators.
1: Yeah. So this started uh, back in October. You had the seven patterns to refactor fat active record models. And everybody looked at that and went, whoa, there's like actual specific things in this blog post. <laughs> is that what they said? I hope that's what they said. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that I think that was the actually most retweeted tweet about it, yeah. It was like, like, whoa, this is a words.
1: So... so where did these specific things come from? Is this just, you know, in your position as, you know, code climate, being able to look at all of the metrics for all of these different things, is there, like, some numerical basis behind choosing these seven things or that came out of, out of working with all these different pieces of code and looking at metrics of them, or was it something else?
4: No, it, it, you know, those primarily came from just patterns that... You know, in various forms, I've applied knowingly or unknowingly over the last, I don't know, uh, five years or so doing, doing Rails app development. So, you know, I sat down to write it, and some of them kind of uh, immediately presented themselves, and others were sort of refactorings that I've applied, but I hadn't really worked out exactly, you know, what the best way to refer to it was, or even thought through, you know, the, the trade-offs between the different patterns. So actually, in writing the post... I kind of clarified for myself um, some of those different trade-offs and ins and outs about you know which patterns to use when and what the you know what the difference is between you know the different concepts.
1: Okay. But but just to satisfy my curiosity there mm-hmm. there there hasn't been some occasion where you're looking at the operation of code climate and all the different people's code that it's looking at and getting information about like which metrics you're using metrics to, to identify the most common problems in in code across all these different projects
4: yeah so I don't I mean I don't look at anybody's code that's on code climate there's you know I use it for my own code and the, mm-hmm. uh, the metrics you know I get back in aggregate but they're not the refactorings aren't really driven by the metrics I mean it's one it's kind of an interesting thing because obviously with code climate produces all these metrics about you know every class and your whole code base but you know, there's a fair degree of abstraction to go from looking at a metric that says, okay, this class is really complicated to, okay, now what do I do about it? And the tool, you know, no tool can really sort of go that far along those lines. Um, so, you know, I, it's basically just out of experience. And then, you know, one thing I guess that I have been fortunate to do is, you know, sometimes people set up their apps on CodeClimb and they want to show me sort of the results that come out of it. And there's been a few times where that's happened, and people got, like, really, really great um, code climate scores right off the bat on a Rails app, like a a Rails app of size, which is pretty uncommon. You know, usually if the Rails app is big enough, there's going to be enough um, kind of sprawl and big models and stuff like that where it's going to drag down the scores a bit. But a few people had apps that were, you know, scoring really well right off the bat, and they wanted to to show me that, so they did – and I was just kind of like blown away by that. And I, you know, started thinking, well, what are these people doing differently that's causing them to, you know, have code that seems to be uh, more well factored than the average Rails app? Well, actually, one of those people was, was Matt Wynn, who, uh, who set up an app on there and it was getting like all A's right off the bat. I was like, <laughs> that's amazing. I've never seen that before. And then he started showing me some of the things that he was doing and it was really cool. Okay, cool.
0: So one of the things that I noticed um, looking at the, the blog post here. One of the first things you said was, "Don't extract mixins from fat fat models," and uh, nice. I, I, it, it kind of made me think for a minute because you know it it is something that you know is handy to do when you extract mixins from you know from models, but it's handy when it's shared behavior. It's it's not handy when you're taking one giant junk drawer and making a whole bunch of little ones.
4: Yeah, I, I think that was the one of the analogies I used in the post. Uh, it's just you know, the idea of pulling out bags of methods, um, I think people do it a lot of times just because it's very easy. Uh, You know, you haven't established any, you haven't established a strong domain concept and, you know, any of those methods can call other methods that get mixed into the same class, so you're very unlikely to break things in the refactoring, but you've kind of made it harder to see what's going on and what the, you know, extracting the right concepts from that model would look like. So I think that's the biggest problem is if you, you know, if you cut things the wrong way, then it can make it harder to be able to visualize how to cut things in maybe a, uh, cut things up in a better way.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I love that the lead into all of this was use composition, not inheritance. And that I, Plus one to that I did not invent that the <laughs> well, well no, but but you used it incredibly well,
2: so and, <laughs> and there are a lot of Ruby programmers that tend to treat mix-ins like composition, that you know I'm mixing in this thing, so obviously I'm composing it, and no, actually, you're not. Uh, you are inheriting when you do include module, that's in the freaking super chain. you can you can call super to get to those mo- module methods. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little subtle that people don't realize that, that that's inheritance, guys. Yeah, it puts yeah. it into the ancestors tree. It's there. Yeah. Which
5: yeah. means that it is now, you know, that you have, in fact, expanded your objects API.
4: Yep. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. You know, some people get hung up on the difference between, you know, inheriting from a class, like active record base versus including a set of functionality, like use um, MongoMapper, and that's based on an include. Yeah, you know they're they're really you can do the same thing either way. The only difference I think is just basically around how you're communicating about what the class is. Right? Mm-hmm. Functionally, they do the same thing, but mm-hmm. you can say, okay, this you know this class is a type that descends from this other type versus uh, it has an aspect of behavior which is this module. But so I, I don't get too stressed. About you know for libraries like ActiveRecord or data Map or whether they are inheriting or mixing things in, I think that's a debate that gets you know kind of blown yeah. out of proportion. but I think the key is to understand that inheritance in Ruby is very is basically the same thing as including things in Ruby, and you have to treat it the same way and apply the same concepts
2: yeah it, well, it, and it's it's prefer, not never ever use, right i mean it's it's not a binary sure. decision yeah, and, absolutely.
1: And in and in fact, there's um, a uh, you know linear combination of the two that you we know, we I think is a, a pretty good approach sometimes. And and I'm actually seeing some opportunities for that in in this seven patterns to refactor post, where that let me clarify what I mean. That um, you can have a module that mixes in an incredibly narrow API that makes doing the composition easier. So, like, when you have your um, authentication thing here, you know, know, your service object with the user authenticator class, that you can do that and have this other object, and then there can be a small mix-in to your model class that gives it a nice API for talking to that um, authentication class.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. You can use uh, a mix-in to patch together objects which are working together through composition.
1: Yes, that's a good way to summarize my rambling explanation.
2: That's sorry, I'm just sitting here, kind of mind blown. Av, Avdi, you mentioned that yeah, you mix in a module and you have just expanded your objects API. And I'd never actually considered it that way, but holy freaking crap, yeah.
5: Yeah, I mean, the way that I usually put it is, you know, some people, <laughs> some people, when when confronted with a class that's too big, think I will, I will split this class into a class and five modules. Now they have six problems. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so one other I like thing that. That, that I noticed and it's very closely related to this is that of your seven uh, strategies or patterns or whatever you want to call them um, I like strategies better personally but uh, we can use the word pattern if we want five of them end in object and five of them are extract x object one is introduce view objects and the last one is extract decorators and decorators are effectively another object that just have a different job and so I, I think it's interesting when you're saying work with composition as opposed to inheritance. I mean, that's, that's really what we're doing here, is we're, we're composing these objects that do the job we need them to do.
4: Yeah, it's, it's no coincidence that uh, none of the seven patterns I cover in that post actually involve including modules.
1: <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Uh, do, we, do we have more to say on, on that uh, blog post, or can we talk about the class methods?
3: We have more to say on that blog post.
1: Okay, what do we have to say? Tell us, (laughs)
3: Katrina. Brian, I was wondering, what are various heuristics that you use to recognize, um, for example, that you need a value object here? Like, how do you recognize a value object that's hiding in a big class or a service object um, or a policy object?
4: I think that's a great question. Uh, You know, at the highest level, one thing I do is look at the code climate scores for these things and to see, okay, it looks like this active record is getting getting pretty fat and the rating is, is getting pretty bad but more practically once uh, you know I'm diving into a class and looking at it there's a few things and my favorite is to look for methods that have repeated words in either the as a suffix or a prefix that is usually a surefire uh, pointer that you are missing an object so if you've got, you know, methods in a active record class that all end with underscore rating, so, you know, rating better than, you know, rating greater than, rating from re- remediation costs, those are some examples from the, the post, then it's really telling you you want a class named rating. So that's my favorite, by far, way to recognize concepts. It's actually something I'd love to do on Code Climate automatically in the future is detect, like, you've got... 30 methods in the class, and seven of them have the same prefix. Are you missing a blank, where blank is whatever that prefix is? Nice. Mm.
2: So it'll group up all your handler methods and say, are you missing an on class? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, right. all right. Actually,
0: in my case, they just got the letters reversed. It's no class.
4: No. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things about value objects that, so they're probably one of my Favorite refactorings. I think they're often overlooked in Rails apps. And I read this post that kind of expanded my mind in thinking about value objects. And it's a little bit controversial. So if you'll indulge me, uh, the the it was you know written by someone who used Java primarily. And their their point was basically you can have a value object for everything, right? So if you have a name, you can have a name value object. You can have one for an address. You can have one for a rating. And in age, anything you want. And so the question is really, like, in what cases is that appropriate? But there can be use in having value objects for just a heck of a lot of primitive um, concepts in your application. And everything starts as, you know, generally starts as a primitive, right? You're creating a string column or a numeric column in your database and ActiveRecord pulls it out and you end up with a string or a fix num or a float in Ruby, but all of those are opportunities for introducing value objects. It's just a question of which ones make sense. It sounds simple, but it really kind of um, expanded my mind in thinking about like, okay, there are tons of applications to apply this. It's just a matter of picking the right ones.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like in the case of like name and address, I mean, if you're just putting it in the database and then pulling out to display, it, you probably don't need one it seems like the win especially in your right. example with the rating is that there's all this behavior around it that it that it does all these different things you know it it does comparisons it you know it puts it out to a hash it, it it all that stuff so there's 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 value in putting that in there because you know it it has some behavior on it whereas with name i mean it's just a string and you're that's all you're using it for
4: yeah, I think that's right, and I'm not. I'm certainly not advocating that anybody create classes for all those different types of values. Uh, in the case of name, for example, in the Code Climate code base, I do have a uh, you know a human name object, and it is for splitting the name into different parts. So you can ask for the first name, or the last name, or the full name, or the first name with the last initial, uh, all of those things. So it's the you know I think the interesting thing is just as soon as you start to hang behavior around a value, you can consider doing a value object. And there actually tend to be pretty simple refactorings because you can make them quack a lot like the primitives in Ruby, you know, and you have the duct typing. So it just works really well if you're defining, like, 2S, then you can basically define the default representation for a person's name in your application by way of the person name 2S method. And that will just work when you're interpolating that into your views. So that's all I was getting at there.
0: There's one other thing that this kind of brings to mind, and that is is that most of the time you have um, methods, helper methods in Rails that do this kind of thing on the views to display things in a certain format or things like that. So where's the balance between those? I mean, when do you want to use one over the other?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I think for me, I would not want anything that is specific to the delivery mechanism to creep into value objects. So by delivery mechanism, I I mean, for most people, it's going to be your HTML concerns, right? Um, But in the case of the person name example, that's something that is used both on the web and in email. Now, let's say uh so that's i think a clear win for the value object but even if it wasn't going to be used in email at all even if it was only for the web page i think i would still prefer using a value object and encapsulating the behavior in the value object uh if that behavior does not have presentational concerns so if you know getting at the idea that I'm not crazy about helpers. <laughs> I think they're useful for um you know small bits of template functionality which is kind of why they were, were written but they get abused a lot. And so I would look at you know encapsulating into a value object first for anything that's not presentation specific.
1: It, the the thing that I always run into uh, around value objects is that uh when you when people start calling it a value object I think that 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 sets up an expectation that it's a passive piece of data, and that the i mean the pattern of around or i don 't know if it's a pattern or a principle or what, but using value objects it is you're really thinking about these things as passive entities they're just repositories for state, and you pass them around, and other things figure out what to do with that state and i That can be i think a great way to um, like uh, you you know, loosen the coupling between between pieces of code but it can i think it can also get you in trouble in that it distributes the the behavior relevant or related to that data into various places that um are, and and that i don't know putting that behavior into the value objects class can you know sometimes you want to do that instead and in fact a lot of time you want to do that instead i find
4: yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you're saying by creating a value object, it allows you to centralize the behavior around that
1: concept? Yeah, absolutely. and And that's like eighty percent of the reason why I, why I create what people call value objects is a place to put that behavior. But I think when you when you call them value objects, and like the um, the goose approach to value objects, I think is very much they're just passive objects and their their state. I don't know. Maybe I got that wrong because I didn't get a chance to read all of Goose. (laughs) But um, I mean, am I off base there, or is this is calling them value objects a way to trick people into not taking advantage of the behavioral aspect of them?
4: Well, I think the you know the value object distinction is primarily around the fact that they're usually immutable and their identity is. Sort of derived from the data that they're holding and not sort of an external identity in the system. so a property of value objects is usually if you you know initialize two of them with the same variables, then they are usually you know going to be equal to each other that's a that's a good right. distinction. but you know I don't think that it necessarily means that they can't have behaviors. I think you're just looking to create um, you know behaviors that are sort of fine-grained, gener- like used in multiple places are kind of the, the things I'm thinking about. You know, just like Ruby has a very rich set of value objects built into it, right? You've got everything in fixnum and string and arrays, which hold you know, multiple objects, and they have all these behaviors that are hung off of them, and that's because Ruby's very general purpose. You can establish behaviors that are specific to your application domain and hang them off of value objects that are just in your app.
5: Okay, so we can can we talk about class methods? Yeah, absolutely. So why do Ruby class methods resist refactoring anyway? <laughs> good, good setup, Abdi. Why do you ask? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I heard something about
4: that. Yeah. So uh, this is something that has come up for me a number of times over the years, I, and I have had this discussion with programmers on different teams that I've worked on, and I finally was like, you know what, I think I want to clarify my thoughts about this and put it in a blog post so I don't have to keep remembering. But the idea of the post is, sort of in short, that class methods are global. And because as a result of them being global, they tend to resist object-oriented approaches to decomposition. Uh, And there's a great comment thread on the post where people talk about doing functional decompositions of class methods. And that can work. If you're doing more of a functional style, then you're just going to be passing data down the chain to the different decomposed functions into finer, finer level of detail. But I usually prefer to start with uh, a base where I can do object-oriented refactorings. And if you have your behavior sitting in a class method, you can't do simple things like extract methods without starting to run into friction. You can't use instance variables. So the post was primarily a response to people who might look at class methods that uh, or rather, people who might look at classes that don't have any state and that only have one method and say you know, Yagni why did you do that? You could have just wrote a class method. And in some cases, I do use class methods, and I cover a few of those edge cases in the post. But generally, the reason I do that is it just makes it a lot easier for me to see opportunities for refactoring and then take them. Whereas if I have everything bunched up in a class method, it's harder for me, at least when I'm looking at code, to extract those and decompose those. And I've seen, I've you know, sort of anecdotally, that on Teams, Behavior that starts simple in class methods generally just becomes complicated class methods rather than getting pulled out and neatly decomposed.
5: yeah, and you even sometimes see stuff where you know they've started sort of simulating having instances you know classes keeping might be start to keep track of multiple sets of information or something like that. I actually saw an example um, of where um, you know where this can go bad really recently. Um, I had someone come up to me, a pairing client, come to me and say, "So I've got this, this redesign that I want to do. Well, you know, refactoring, redesign. We have this program that uh, we wrote as a as a one shot command line thing that would that would uh, collate a bunch of data, and I, I think it uh, I forget if it sent out reports or what, but uh, you know, it's, it's a one shot thing that would it would run and and then be done. And so it was written with a whole lot of a whole lot of class methods." Uh, a whole lot of class level data, you know. So the classes had instance class instance variables, and it worked great as this command line program. But they wanted to turn it into a daemon, something that would sit, you know, persistent memory, and and periodically uh, do this this task that it was, you know, supposed to do. And so suddenly you had this problem where you had class classes with you know with data specific to a single run. That would be, you know, and that data would just sit around and not be cleared out. uh, The next time it wanted to send stuff out, because it's sitting there in memory, you know, and it would have, if they had just created, if they had just created instances in the beginning, um, you know, there wouldn't have been an issue. Each, each, it could have sat there in memory, but each time it actually kicked off the the batch job, uh, it would just be, you know, starting up a new instance and it would create its, you know, whatever subsidiary instances. Um, you know, and so we, we went over various um, strategies for for tackling it. But uh, you know, it was one of those things where you know I probably wouldn't have had that pairing session to, to begin with if um, you know if if the program had been written with instances in mind. So, so
2: bad code brings us together, is what you're saying?
5: Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: There's a, a favorite pain point that I have in Ruby. Um, I came to Ruby through Python, through Perl, and so I write a lot of command line scripts. And it's really tempting to just say, you know, hashbang, user bin, and Ruby, and then just start writing, you know, do something, do something, do something, do something. Nice procedural code, I love it, and. I reached this point where my script is now 120 lines long. I really ought to extract this to a method, so I extract it. Oh, but now I can't use any variables that I don't pass in because mm-hmm. you know they're 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 no longer in scope. And God help me, there were a few times when I would just start making global variables with the actual dollar sign so that they could mm-hmm. be used inside the, the method. And then I kind of grew up a little bit and I realized okay there's this point when your your script hits somewhere between 25 and 100 lines but after 100 lines you're definitely past this point when your script should begin with class application or class my my script and your script your program your script file should end with you know if dollar sign 0 equals file script new run and uh, now you've got instance variables, and now all the OO stuff that you want works. And that's that's a favorite pain point of mine is when you extract something to a method and you can't get to the variables that are outside the method. Well, yeah, the gonna...
5: obvious solution to that is to write your initial script with with nothing but globals. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. actually kind ha- kind of half serious about that. I mean, if you're gonna <laughs> you know, if you're gonna write a, a, a just a straight line script without any abstractions to start yeah. with, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do, you know, write it like Perl and and stick a dollar on the on the front of everything, and then. Yeah. You know, then you can then that that refactoring process is you know is a little easier because you still have access to that variable. You can just go through one by one and, and start turning them into instance variables.
2: Well, yeah. it's it, yeah, I joke about it, but I mean, if you opened that script and read it, the first thing you would go is "What the?" and that's the correct response. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I, i'm serious i'm serious <laughs> that you you now know that you have left the script you, we have departed the text this is not going to be clean object-oriented ruby this is a glue file and okay all right we're in glue land
4: what yep. the crap so my favorite part about uh, global variables. so variables with dollar signs are my favorite global variables and the reason for that is it's really freaking obvious they're global yes. variables. So you can't get that confused. I, on the other hand, you've got things like class instance variables, class variables, their module equivalents. There's a lot of different ways that you can have hidden global state yeah. in Ruby. So I love the dollar variables because it's just like I. there's no way to miss the fact that this is a global variable across the entire yep. program. End of story.
2: Yep. There's There's an analogy that I like to make here, and this is... Uh, kind of unique to my personality, but uh, when I was a kid growing up, we had a cat and a dog. Well, we had several cats and several dogs, and the cats would poop behind the aquarium, and the dogs would poop in the middle of the floor. And we loved the dogs more.
5: The dollar <laughs> sign is pooping
2: in the middle of the floor.
5: Um, well, then there's the you know, there's the constant that that is is always hiding in plain sight, which or the, uh, you know, the the global that's always hiding in plain sight, which is the constant, you know, any any. Yeah, yeah. Name of a class or or whatever.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. That, okay, so the, the David, when you're talking about like I got this big big messy script, there's no objects in it or no yeah. classes. That yeah, it, it's it often strikes me that a good way to approach that sort of thing is like a first step refactoring is to turn it into the equivalent of a method object. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. class application def run. Contents of the entire script, end, end.
1: Yeah. Yeah you, yeah. you pull all the locals into instance variables. Yeah. And and then just start breaking it down into small scripts or small methods that use those instance variables. Yeah. The, sa- the same way you do an extract method object yep. refactoring. Yep. So yeah.
0: I don't think we've taken this head on, but when is an appropriate time to use class methods or globals or, because it seems like class methods and globals are mostly the same thing. Just the scope is a little bit different.
2: Well, I think if you've already got a bunch of fat models hanging around, then it's great. Okay. I'll work on funnier stuff later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have the, a good answer. When is, when is good to use class method? I,
1: I think the the obvious use case for class methods is factories to create instances. Mm-hmm.
4: Until and so those factories get complicated. Yes.
1: Well, yeah, the, I, Yes, there's, there's always a, a cliff for you to fall over. And when it, they it, get complicated, it, it, then that's when we you need go? factory factories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want a factory repository.
4: I, when I, think I, I was reading a Giles, Giles' new book recently, and he talks about how Rubyists love factories. They just hate the word factory. So they have all these factory <laughs> things. But if anyone goes, so far as to call it a factory, or God help you put factory in a method name or a class name, uh, everybody uh, flips out.
2: Yeah. yeah,
4: we, over,
2: over here Over here we call it builder. Over here we call it builder.:
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yehuda wrote a blog post a couple years ago that, that, was, that basically said, "Ruby classes are factories." Mm. yep, that's just, accurate. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that was basically the whole post, but, but uh, Brian, do you want to talk about like some rule of thumb for noticing when your factory got complicated, or is it just an exercise left to the reader?
4: Um, you know, for... Since... If you're talking about if you have a factory implemented as a class method when it's complicated and you look at extracting it out... Yeah. Um, for me, that's on the order of a few lines. Just for the, the same reason that I wrote the post about not using class, class methods for most things. I think I generally just use them to convert, you know, maybe take an object and build up an instance with it by calling a few methods and passing state down. But as soon as you start to get into, if there's any cyclomatic complexity, I think that would probably be one tipping point. So anything beyond just a few method invocations for me, I'm going to look at extracting into a class. Now, I might keep a class method as a convenience. This is something I think I mentioned in the post a little bit that I don't mind using class methods that are really just a short way to make it easier for programmers in the rest of the code to build up instances, even if there's a factory that's being used under the hood. But at that point, they're really just sugar. Um, So I think that use can be okay, and you can have your cake and eat it too almost. That sounds good. Yeah,
1: I think that's in keeping with my thoughts.
0: Now I'm hungry. He was talking about sugar and cake. <laughs> <laughs>
4: can
1: so can we get some can we get some pie in there too? Let's I see.
4: am fresh out of pie analogies. Okay. Two pie
0: r. So um I think it's it's interesting and I kinda wanted to talk about this a little bit too. I remember when I got into Rails. Um at first it was just this is way cool. And then I start talking to people, and they and you know it's skinny controllers, fat models, skinny controllers, fat models. Do you, do you think that that mantra in the Rails development community has has hurt us at all? And and or yes. do, or do you think that this <laughs> or do you think that this is just the next evolution of the skinny controller, fat model, and now it's skinny controller, you know, skinny model and compose intelligently.
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you just don't want anything to be fat is what it comes down to at the end of the day. I I think what was meant by that anecdote is keep your controller layer thin and simple and, like, use your model layer to encapsulate all your domain objects, which is right. And so in the end, you will have a lot more meaningful code in your model layer than in your controller layer. But I think that... You know, in passing, it, it almost sounds like what's expected of you is to have active record classes that are more than 500 lines long, which I think anyone who's maintained apps that have those those classes over long periods of time can tell you. Um, they can tell you what callback hell feels like, at least. I'll work on being funnier next time too. <laughs> you just sit over here by me. You're you're supposed to laugh at the guest.
1: Yeah. The, I, I, oh, I we think- are. <laughs> it's just, it's just in the back channel. You can't hear it. Yeah, Brian, Brian, I think you need. Is to there another chat. call going on? <laughs> ah, crap! I let it out. Brian, I, I think we've seen uh, that that fine tuning your ADD meds has a huge effect on humor level.
4: <laughs> I'll get on that. Okay. I, I, Wait. Full disclosure,
2: uh I'm mixing I'm freebasing uh Ritalin with cough medicine this morning. And so Oh dear. That that may be why I'm laughing a little bit too hard at some of the jokes.
1: <laughs> okay, we have what we have one more uh one more blog post in the uh in the series of awesomeness right now, which is uh Objects the Unix Way. Yes. Can we can we move on to talk about about the uh, uh, objects that you can snap together like Legos? Or... I'm good with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that a strained analogy? I'm really good with the strained analogies, it turns out. Yeah, uh,
4: yeah so this post I just want to call out it was written by a fantastic guest post author named John Pinata, who I've had the pleasure of working with in the past on a project, uh, or a couple projects actually. And he sort of distilled this. Uh, kind of comparison between the way Unix is built and the way object-oriented systems gets built into this post, which I think is is great. So all the credit in the world goes to John on this one.
1: Okay. So what's the takeaway from this?
4: I'll give you the takeaway. Uh, The takeaway is that creating small building blocks that have clean interfaces and have specific names where you're encapsulating functionality Gives you the foundation to start composing them in ways that weren't originally intended. It's just like you can pipe things together in you know with bash on a Unix command line, if you have objects which are decomposed and small and fine-grained, you can start to get that benefit of reuse in the small that. It you know, doesn't work as well in, for reuse in very large cases, but you can end up with classes that are actually reusable. And I think it, a lot of this just boils down to the open-closed principle, which is one of my favorite object-oriented principles when I'm able to pull it off.
1: And, and for our listeners at home, open-closed is?
4: So the open-closed principle says that objects should be closed for modification, but open for, I think it's extension, and basically, yeah. it's like you write a class, it does one thing, it does it well. So there's not much of a need to go back in and modify the class later at all. You can create substitutes, you can you know, extend that class and build more things on top of it. But once it does the job that you defined for it, why do you need to reopen it and go back and modify it 34
1: more times? Okay, so, so, so I, have a, I have a counter to that. That, that I'm actually yes. really curious to hear your, your, your thoughts on that. Um, the, there's, a, there's a couple uh, classes that Smalltalk programmers are really used to that Ruby programmers don't see much of uh, because Smalltalk was built as a graphical programming environment. So there's a lot of stuff in there for dealing with things being painted on, on a display and users interacting with that. So you have mm-hmm. a lot of geometric classes within the system and point and rectangle are, yep. v- are very commonly used objects within Smalltalk, and we don't get them in Ruby. They're not part of the standard library that you see all the time. And wh- so one of the things that you often do when you are building something like a, a, a graphical interface or a graphics editor or anything where you're doing stuff on the screen is you do hit detection to say, oh, uh, did this click happen in this rectangle, which is the bounding box of the view? Or, you know, I'm dragging this button around or what have you that that you want to know if that click is inside the rectangle. And if you are approaching things from, OK, I have this rectangle class and it, it knows how to it knows what its shape is and it knows how to paint itself. And then I'm in some controller or what have you where I want to know if a click is inside the rectangle. I can write that code in the controller to compare the location of the point with the extent of the rectangle and see if there's an intersection or if there's containment. Moving that, that piece of code into a method in the rectangle to see if the rectangle contains a point means that you can now use that code everywhere in the system that would care about is a point within a rectangle. And so it, so it's really clear to me that putting that method inside the rectangle class is the right place to put it.
4: Yeah, it's it sounds like if I can sort of connect this to Ruby code, it's similar to opening core classes, reopening core classes, and building more functionality on them. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I'd say, I'd say you have you have this rectangle class that everybody in the system uses, and all of your applications use it. And you have this new thing, and 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 I mean the rectangle class in Smalltalk knows how to tell if a point's inside it. That's just everywhere. But there must have been some moment in the history of small talk where somebody came up with that need to have that method and decided that Rectangle was the right place to put it. And if they had been building a controller at the time, and the, you know, the open closed principle is like, okay, we're going to extend this class, but we're not going like, to open it for modification. At some point, you have to figure out what, you know, oh, what goes in this class and let me... Yeah.
4: Okay. I think I get you. Yeah. I mean, so, so this is, I think the interesting part about applying the open closed principle, I guess I don't feel so much like I apply the open closed principle. I end up when I'm, you know, when the design is going well, I end up with objects that happen to follow it. So I don't really ever look, take the open close principle and look at a change that I need to make and say, well, I'm not going to open this class and put this here because of the open-close principle. Instead, uh, I'll kind of ignore, like, I don't think about, that's not one of the principles I usually think about while I'm actually making the change, but then I'll notice, if my design's going well, I'll notice that it seems to be following the open-close principle because I have these classes that I haven't had to make modifications to that seem like they're finished, and if the design is not going so well, I'll notice that I'm having to reopen, let's say, you know, the user class in an application and continuing to put stuff in there. So it's kind of one of those things where it's more of a an end than the way to get there for me.
3: It also seems to be a matter of like how much. Like opening it once and adding that thing that really belonged there is different from churning, from ending up op- reopening it. You know, every other day fixing bugs, adding new behavior, taking it back out. That's um, that's a whole different thing.
4: Yeah, and, and I would say that the, the simplest modification that you can make to an object, let's take this rectangle, for example, would be just adding a new piece of behavior like collision detection that doesn't change the behavior that's already in there. You're just saying, okay, rectangles, I you know, didn't need this at the time, but they, you know, collision detection is a core concept for rectangles in our system. We're going to add that, and like Katrina said, it's one change. Um, but it's not going to the six other methods that have been in Rectangle for the last you know, three months and rewriting them for the 17th time. Yeah.
5: So when I think okay. about the, the open-close open principle, I, th- I, think, I usually think more um, in terms of objects that I can extend easily, uh, that I can make my own extensions to easily without actually you know, putting anything, without reopening a class or anything like that. And one of the examples that I see a lot is the idea of callbacks um and not not like not like heavy duty callbacks where you're saying tell some class hey on this event please do this um but more like i guess just more like internal callbacks like when you have a class that whose main you know go method whose you know primary method is follows the composed method pattern where it's basically like just a series of method of of method calls one after another you know might be like Uh, The first one is like setup, and then the next one is do some work, and then the next one is teardown. And then I can inherit from that class, you know, and it's got its own setup and and teardown and and do some work methods. But I can inherit from that class, and I can just override any of those any of those methods in my inherited class. Very simply, you know, I don't have to I don't have to replace like that main go method in order to get my own stuff in there. I can, you know, if I want to do a little. Do a version that has a little extra setup. I can just inherit from it and replace the the prepare method and nothing else. That's really interesting.
4: I hadn't thought about it in that sense so much. I think primarily because I don't do a ton of uh, inheritance. So I think you know it's interesting because the the principle is it should be closed for modification but open for extension. And you know usually extends is you know often kind of closely related to inheritance. But you know I, I think that. When I'm thinking about the open closed principle, it's almost closed for modification and reusable, um, kind of in different ways. And sometimes that's inheritance, but for me, usually it's it's not.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: I often think about extension in terms of decorators.
5: Right, right. Could you? Is there like an example of that that you can think of?
3: Uh, off the top of my head, <laughs> <laughs> no.
5: Yeah. Did you like I mean, my really my my highly specific example of like do some work and and set up and
3: yeah because that I was a really specific
5: like, example yeah yeah class, I mean you were doing it yesterday right concrete yeah.
3: Yeah. I I find myself using the the delegator um or delegate from standard library a lot just to wrap I have one of the projects I'm working on has sixty or sixty five sort of base objects that are really tiny. They're all, they're all like instances of the same thing. And instead of having a Postgres database and active record, I just kind of hard-coded 65 hashes. Um, and then I use these objects in several different applications. And in these applications, they might need a little bit of extra logic. Like in, in some of the applications, they they do one type of work. We're back to doing work and setting up. And in other applications, they'll do other type of types of work and I'll use delegate just to have the, the the little object sort of at the center of things, and just delegate all of the usual things to that, and just have two or three methods that do the the custom stuff.
1: I I, I like that when the when what you're doing with that object, it doesn't need to know about it. You know, if, if you're just like wrapping another layer around the object, that's perfect. The, it, as soon as you get into the it, into where the where the guts of the object need to care about what you're what you 're adding to it, then that stops working so well,
3: yeah, one of the examples from this thing is that I needed geo, geolocation for these things these, um, these objects knew where they knew they knew who they are, but the geolocation would just take um, who who they were and the long lats and then do a bunch of um, calculations based on that. Mm-hmm.
2: One of the things I love about Ruby is that you can take these decorators and and for lack of a better term, mix them in. You know, you monkey patch them into the class. We talked about limiting that a little bit, but what I love is that, uh, like, if you were to take a take the array class and you know it really really needs this method that's going to add you know geolocation to it or something like that. If you call map, you're going to get back a bare array in any other language, and you're going to lose that long lap behavior that you mixed in. Um, like in Java or C Sharp, you have to write an Array Two class or a C String Two uh, class if you're going to you know modify these things by extension. But all the library methods give you back the bare you know the base class that you extended. And I love in Ruby that you can modify that base class and it stays modified so that uh, your API stay consistent.
0: All right. Well, we're getting pretty close to needing to do picks. Are there any other areas or aspects of this that we want
1: to talk about? brian uh what 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 should we keep an eye out for that is, is are there going to be more of these things on your blog? i mean what's the, the yes. I mean, they've, they've what, can you get, can you give us a preview of coming attractions
4: yeah tell us what you're going to tell us about the next time we have you on the show <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so you know one of the things that I just started kicking around today was writing a little bit about some of the uh, functional core, imperative shell stuff that that's been talked about a bit. You know, Gary Bernhardt and Michael Feathers have talked about that stuff a lot. So I think I'm gonna you know start kicking around some ideas for that sort of thing. I'd also like to cover um, some different ways to structure controllers that are maybe a little bit newer that uh, people might you know explore to try to decompose their controller layer in a you know a more factored way than what Rails kind of gives you out of the box as kind of an exploratory conversation. Um, I have, I don't know, 30, <laughs> 30 uh, sort of rough concepts in the queue. But um, yeah, if people check out the Code Climate blog, then we're trying to um, you know, beef up the posting on that. So there should be some pretty regular stuff coming out, just really along these lines. If you're interested in the intersection of you know, object-oriented design, Ruby, Rails, all of that stuff. Um, that's you know. That's where it'll be.
3: And, I have to and, say, I've, re- I've really been enjoying the the Twitter feed uh, from Code Climate. Oh, lately. thank
1: you. Cool. And, and uh, do you want to take a moment for shameless self promotion to talk about like how things are going at Code Climate and you know uh, you know how, how's the business going or the you know cost, you know customer happiness?
4: Yeah. Um, sure. Thank you. Uh, So, I mean, for for people who might not know, uh, Code Climate is my business. It does hosted automated code reviews for Rails apps, and it does that using static analysis. So if you hook up your app to it, it'll give your team feedback over time about how the quality of your code is changing, which you can use to to get a better handle on technical debt and improve your quality. Fortunately, it's been going very, very well, and in fact, it is entirely my full-time thing uh, these days. It's just really just me at this point, but yeah, the uh, the business is is going well, and we've been launching a lot of new features now that. I am not doing any, uh, any freelance work. So we just launched, I guess this is, would be timely, a compare view, which I'm really excited about. And if you think of GitHub's compare view, where it'll show you just you know, the diffs, the commits, between any two um, points in time, we can do the same thing except we're showing you specifically the changes of the quality of those classes between two endpoints. So if you have new duplications, um, fixed complex methods, all that stuff will show it to you in a very sort of clear, you know, red-green sort of view where you can see what the new problems were that introduced and the the ones that were fixed. So that's the that's the newest feature that I'll plug. Nice. Sweet.
0: That sounds good. Sounds, sounds yeah. like something that could definitely be put to good use. All right, well, let's get into the picks. David,
2: what are your picks? Two ones, uh, pretty, pretty quick and easy. Um, two books that I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying the heck out of. Uh, one is The Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin, uh, where she just spent a year experimenting to find, to find the things that just made her happier. And uh, she made a lot of surprising things um, that uh, you know challenge can be a source of happiness. Money can buy you happiness if you spend it wisely. Being organized, outer order, contributes to inner calm, that sort of thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a really compelling read. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, the other book that I'm reading right now we all know about uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, and it's 76 years old. It was written in 1936, so, you know, it's pretty skippable, right? It, well, actually, it's not. The reason why nothing has replaced it is because it's just, it's it's awesome. You need to read If you have not read this book, you need to go read it. Okay, some of the stories he uses, he talks about Teddy Roosevelt going on safari in Africa. So, you know, those are... Uh, you know some of the stories seem a little distant but when he talks about big oil scandals you're like <laughs> you know that that still seems kind of relevant um, and uh, you know basically Carnegie's if you want the TldR of the book um, you can win friends and influence people by not being a butthole um, is kind of his approach to it. it it's how to be a nice person and still get people uh, to be influenced and and uh, and to want to yeah to basically be part of your tribe so that uh, you can influence them that way. So that uh, them's my picks, actually. All right, Katrina, what are your picks?
3: I have two picks today. Uh, the first is 24pullrequests.com. It's the secret Santa for open source. By the time this show airs, it's actually going to be half, halfway through December. Uh, don't let that get in your way. Um, go read issues on open source projects, And, um, just read through 40 or 50 issues and then read through them again, trying to understand them, read some source code, try to reproduce it, create a failing, failing test. Um, especially when you can't understand what's going on, document that, that confusion by asking clarifying questions. And, um, I had some nice successes last week just by asking, Hey, is this still relevant? And I think like four issues got closed just by not being relevant anymore. So that's. Um, that's cool. The other pick that I have is um, sort of a not technical, not technical code-wise. It's how to test for proper pan heat when you're frying food. So there's this uh, online cooking school called Ruby.com, R-O-U-X-B-E, Ruby. Uh, nice. And there's the, <laughs> there's a video um, for how to test a, a frying pan for the correct heat, and it's, it's just – um really really good.
1: So, those are my two. Super. Josh, what are your picks? I I I'm still reeling from ruby.com. <laughs> 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 that that's that's awesome. <laughs> okay. Oh uh, jeez. Uh it's um I, I I always look at my picks and I'm like, "Yes, this is what made my life awesome in the last week." But um I don't have to, they aren't very technical right now. <laughs> but they're still pretty awesome. So I I discovered a blog um, in the last week that just sort of like changed my whole outlook on life. It's it's called Fashion It So, and this is uh, uh, some very fashion conscious folks, a, a pair of them, talking about how awesome fashion is in the Star Trek Next Generation show, and and it's it's actually like scathing commentary on the shows themselves and they it's not like they start at season one episode one and work their way through the show they go for the shows that have the most interesting fashion to look at and they talk about like luxana troy's dresses and you know diana troy's Funky jumpsuits, and you know what the hell was Picard wearing this week? <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, why the hell does he get a jacket and everyone else is in you know pullover tops? <laughs> and where did Ensign Rowe get a zipper on her jacket suddenly? Uh, but the, the it's it's actually really smart fashion, and if you have any interest in in fashion, it's it's actually kind of educational. I learned about dolman sleeves; I'd never heard of them before. <laughs> but the, but it's it's sort of like the ultimate confluence of, of um, I guess, uh, Star Trek geekery and uh, s- sarcastic drag queen commentary. So if, if those things are appealing, uh, it'll, <laughs> it, it'll, awesome. it'll, it'll make your day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm and, trying to
0: figure out exactly where that intersection puts it. <laughs> <laughs> well, go take a look at the blog, and you'll see.
1: by, by the way, it, it's 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 definitely uh, got some adult themes going, so uh, I wouldn't share this with your kids. But um, but uh, if if you're a grown-up, it's uh, it's pretty freaking funny. Uh, the the other thing that I have is that uh, given that it's December and we're coming up on the winter solstice, uh, I I wanted to uh, and and one of the things that I hate about this time of year. Is all of the Christmas carols that they play pretty much everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, uh, but the, um, the so an antidote to that is the uh, wonderful Lovecraftian site, very scary solstice carols, mm. and, and and that's at Cthulhu Lives.org slash solstice, <laughs> and it's just amazing. They have um, they have songs like you know it's beginning to look a lot like fishmen. <laughs> The, and uh <laughs> you know the most horrible time of the year uh anyway so it's uh you and you can actually get uh they have not one but two cd collections of these songs uh, and and a few of them you can download the mp3s to check them out but it's uh it's just you know you got death to the world unholy night um the carol of the old ones <laughs> so it it's uh it's a it's a good for a laugh, especially if you're into uh, filk singing, and if you don't know what that is, go look it up. So that that's it for me this week. Uh, hopefully, uh, someone will have something more technical to amuse you with for the next picks.
0: All right, Avdi, what are your
5: picks? Well, I was looking uh, over the uh, the list, and I was very surprised to find I never actually picked my mic. So um, way back when I realized that I was podcaster now. Um, you know, shortly after I, I got the Wide uh, Teams podcast started, I picked up a Blue Snowball microphone, which I guess is kind of almost the almost the default starter podcasting microphone, and uh, for good reason. It's, uh, I mean, um, I get a lot of compliments for how I sound, and I totally like ascribe all that to the microphone. I have a little pop filter on it, and uh, and it, you know, it's 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 a mic that you can get for you know, relatively inexpensive as mics go, you know, definitely under a hundred dollars and it'll make you sound great. And you can just plug it into a USB port. You don't have to worry about, you know, getting interference on your analog cables because it plugs into your USB port and acts like a, acts like a sound card. You know, at this point I'm thinking about, I'm like drooling over fancier microphones, um, and thinking about up- upgrading, but, uh, I don't actually have to, cause you know, this thing, you know, just works. So, you know, if you're thinking of getting into any kind of broadcast or, or uh, just want to sound good while you're on remote meetings or something like that, um, pick one of these things up. Blue Snowball, they're great. And for a uh, not-at-all-technical pick, there seems to be a spate of, of like Snow White-inspired movies and, and things lately, but um, one that just crossed my radar recently is actually from, I think, 2004. It's a, a German movie called Seven Dwarves, uh it's in german it's it's subtitled you can find it on netflix and it is kind of a it's basically like a spoof almost um or a very silly version of of snow white and it's hilarious it's just it's um i think it's i would say it's kid friendly but it's also not very definitely not kid specific i mean there's like an eighth dwarf that 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 the, the, the that's you know actually like normal person size that the the dwarves won't won't let into their club and, and, um, and it turns out that the, the, uh, you know, the dwarves, um, were actually just a bunch of guys that, that all were unlucky in love and decided to, uh, to, to start a household where they would never, they would never, you know, countenance a woman again. And and then, you know, Snow White stumbles into their lives and, and, uh, it's, it's a lot of just like silly slapstick humor. Um, and it's cute and adorable and fun. Sounds like a sitcom. It's like seven and a half men.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll go
0: ahead and go next, and then we'll hear Brian's picks. My first pick, um, my wife, my birthday's not for another week, but my wife got me this birthday present, and then I wound up having to use it because I replaced the alternator in our minivan. And uh, the first one is it's a a low-profile creeper, which is what you lay on with wheels that you – get under the car with. Just terrific. It it has these big honking wheels on it and um, like, like it says it's low profile so you can get under pretty much anything you're working on and not get your shirt or pants or whatever dirty. The other thing that I got for myself for Christmas and wound up using was a two and a half ton floor jack and two and a half ton is what it will lift, not what it weighs. Um, and it it got our van up off the ground pretty easily. And it only took me a couple hours to get the, the alternator out and put a new one in. So um, recommend those. I, I don't know that, that, that was kind of my highlight for the week was working on my car. So uh, anyway, Brian, what are your picks?
4: Yeah, I've got two picks this time. Uh, the first pick is Brakeman, which is a static analysis tool that finds security vulnerabilities in Rails applications. It's actually maintained by a guy, uh, Justin Collins, and some of the folks that he works with at Twitter. Um, but it's a great, easy thing that you can do if you have a Rails app and you deploy it to production, that you can just run on a command line and get potential security vulnerabilities that you have in your app, and they will it will actually rank them by the confidence the tool has that it's actually a real issue. So it's something I recommend everybody run at least once against their Rails app to... Uh, make sure they don't have any sort of dumb security vulnerabilities creeping in, Uh, and then it's something you can obviously run on an ongoing basis. The second pick is a save-the-date for Goruko, which is Gotham Ruby Conference in New York City, and we're going to be having that on Saturday, June eighth, two 2013, and we just announced that date, so... Mark that off. Um, There will be a CFP at some point. So if you are interested in speaking, you can start thinking about that. But we would love to have you and all of the listeners uh, in New York on June 8th for the Gotham Ruby
3: Conference.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Um, Are there any announcements or other things that we want to go over before we end the show? Let's mention our book club book.
2: Oh, yes. Oh, I was going to pick that again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby. Yep. By, by Sandy Metz. Metz.
1: Yeah. Do Do we have a deal or anything for listeners to so get a book sheet?
0: I contacted the publisher. You can get a deal on informit.com, um, but it is basically a 40% discount on two books is what they gave me. Hey, that's not bad. So <laughs> if you buy two books, you can get a 40% off
1: both books. It's- did they need a code or did they just go and? There is a code. It's
0: on the it's on the Ruby Rogues website. Okay, cool. Um, I I think that's everything. Go sign up for Ruby par, Ruby Rogues Parlay if you want to be involved in awesome discussions about code quality and other things. And uh, other than that, I guess we'll wrap up. We will be back next week with another show. Bye bye. Thanks for coming. Yeah. And thanks for coming, Brian. It was an awesome discussion.
4: Yes. Yeah, great being here. Thank you.